Welcome to the Responsibly Different mini-series exploring the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, helping you set meaningful goals in 2023. Welcome to the Responsibly Different mini-series featuring the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. In this episode, Brittany and I will be discussing goal number nine, industry, innovation, and infrastructure. The objective of this goal is to build resilient infrastructure, promote sustainable industrialization, and foster innovation. To get us started, we're going to share with you some insights from a B Corp. Certified in 2006 as one of the first revision architecture. As we think about infrastructure and sustainable development, it felt important to us to explore what it looks like in the context of the buildings we live and work in. Founder of Revision Architecture, Scott Kelly, shares with us why he started the company in the carbon cost of buildings. I realized at a pretty young age that designers were not paying attention to environmental needs of our planet. And that brought me on a journey to realize that I could influence a lot of what was happening in the, in the environment through the built environment because it, it played such a critical role. And now we use terms that are everyday, but you know we know that buildings consume about 40% of the energy, roughly 40% of the carbon footprint just in their operations. And we've gotten a lot smarter to realize that we have the operational impact of our buildings, but we also have the embodied energy that goes into those buildings. And they're actually roughly equal. So for instance, the building that I'm sitting in, if I was to build it today in our office building, it would have an absolutely huge environmental footprint in one year. It's roughly that environmental footprint in the building materials is roughly equal to 30 years of operational carbon. So what exactly is operational carbon? We asked Scott to elaborate on this point for us. He emphasized that building green doesn't always mean building new. If you think about our total carbon footprint and you think about our buildings, as we operate our building, we're burning carbon usually. And that's got a really big impact on the environment and on our cost, and on our health, and a lot of other things. There's also another part of that footprint, and that is when we build a building, when we construct a building, that carbon footprint is roughly equal to 30 years of operation. And when we think about these things, this is why it's so important to not just build new buildings that are green. And we do plenty of that. Sometimes it's appropriate. But to take the existing infrastructure that we have and make it resilient and not waste the carbon that we've already invested, but to reutilize that carbon so we don't actually increase our carbon footprint by mistake. While the UN Sustainable Development Goals are targeted for 2030, Scott reminds us that it's important to be thinking much further into the future in order to promote resiliency in our infrastructure. Here's Scott sharing his thoughts on the UN SDG number nine and how we need to think deeper into the future. If I can share some thoughts on the UN Sustainable Development Goals, specifically Goal 9, 
which is to build resilient infrastructure, promote inclusivity, and sustainable industrialization, and foster some innovation. All of those topics are around resilient and green infrastructure. We have to first start by acknowledging that climate change is real and that it's everywhere. And the impacts are already devastating. We see the devastation in places like Bangladesh or in 2021 in the Arctic blasts in Texas. All over the place, we just have to acknowledge that. We've learned through these and other disasters that our infrastructure and our smaller built environment buildings, our people and our natural environment all rely, and our entire planet relies on these systems, and they are vulnerable. So as we go forward, how do we design things that are better? Not just less bad, as I was saying before, but how do we design things that are really good? In talking about this, we have to talk about our built environment, number one. Second, our people. They're integral. Third, our natural environment, as all life on planet relies on the relationship between these three things. So now let's go unpack that a little bit. How do we design, construct, maintain a resilient resiliency in our built environment? Well, first rule in my book, don't build in places that can't stay there for the next 500 years. One lesson that we have been very slow to learn is water always wins. It's much stronger than we are. We have a couple of choices. We could fight it, probably going to lose. Or we could work with it and make it an opportunity and a resource, and we'll probably win. So the key to this is also to look at those things as a resource and not a problem. And I, I gave a little bit of an example before. Think about how we deal with stormwater. We deal with stormwater, we take it, we push it off the site and we make it our neighbor's problem. But instead, we could take that water that falls from the roof, integrate it into our process in our building, rely on nature to provide us a gift, use it to flush your toilets, your urinals, and then slowly release it back to nature. Second thing is we can plan, design, construct buildings and maintain them like we do a sailboat. If we design projects so they can sail or we that we can sail them, we add a layer of resiliency in everything we do. And I'll explain that a little bit. I can heat and cool this office building that we're in by opening the windows at certain times of the day. In the summer, we leave our windows open after the sun goes down or when we leave and we leave our skylights open. The building cools off all night, slowly. We come back in in the morning, it's nice and cool. We close the windows. All day, the temperature raises maybe three degrees. That's it. But I had no heating or cooling system on. In the fall and the spring, we do the opposite. Why? It's cold at night. We shut the building down. We sail the building. We close those sails. In the middle of the day, when it gets to be 68 degrees or it's really sunny, we open the windows. We promote that natural ventilation. And my building heats up a couple degrees. Then I close the windows. At the end of the day, when I leave, and the heat stays in the building. If we apply that principle to many of the things that we do in life, we learn to use those natural systems and sail our buildings and sail our built environment, we end up with much less environmental impact and actually much less financial impact. There are four months a year, I don't pay a heating bill or cooling bill. That's really good for my people and it's really good for my business. While infrastructure is an important part of goal nine, we also wanted to lift up some of the really exciting ways B Corps are supporting innovators and being innovative themselves. We are excited to bring you a program that we think is a perfect example of innovation. Toms of Maine just created and launched an incubator program to support the next generation of environmental leaders. Here's Michelle Waring, steward for sustainability and everyday good at Toms of Maine, a certified B Corp, 
sharing the details of that program with us. We launched this contest where we asked the next generation of environmental leaders to submit their idea, their project, what they're working on that that they want help with. The incubator program is designed to support sort of the next generation of environmental leaders driving solutions, specifically focused on BIPOC changemakers, um, because we know Black, Indigenous, people of color are often left out of the conversation. And we think this incubator is a great way to sort of support that community. So the incubator winners will receive $20,000 in funding to support their mission. Ongoing mentorship. We have a five uh, great mentors. I'm one of them. <laughs> and we will be sort of working with these um, incubator winners over the course of the, the next months. Um, but we also have some influential voices into sort of sustainability and the climate movement. And then Toms of Maine will be sort of helping to amplify the messages of these winners and sort of offer, you know, support. The idea is, you know, funding is important, but then also like how else can we help support the great work that these young people are doing? We're really excited about this first group of winners. They're incredibly impressive. They all have just a, a passion and a vision for building solutions and, and broadening the environmental movement. Supporting these winners through this program, I can see it leading towards so much job creation for them, but also for others following behind them. It can be a beacon that with creativity and innovation, you can grow and create your own company, following your entrepreneurial spirit. To that degree, make sure after you listen to the full episode, you go check out the show notes for more on each of the incubator members. We then wanted to learn a bit more about how the incubator came to be and what the process was for these innovators to get chosen for the program. So Tom's has always been a company that's been driven by purpose. We were founded in 1970 as a purpose-driven brand, and we are all about sort of doing good for real. And as we sort of started to articulate, you know, our, our we have a goodness report that just came out, our 2022 goodness report, that really sort of articulates like this commitment to planet, people, and health, which are sort of our pillars. And it it's all about that intersection of our purpose, which is we harness the power of nature to create a healthy future for all people. And importantly, part of the B Corp community, ensuring the health of all people, we really have to focus our work on the most mar marginalized, vulnerable communities. This program really expresses the purpose. You know, it, this is our purpose coming to life. We created this incubator because we recognize that, you know, communities across the U.S. are experiencing the effects of climate change, record high temperatures, devastating storms. And when we think about who, who are the people who are developing the solutions and, and also who is feeling the, the greatest impact from climate, right? It's, it's low-income communities, communities of color, you know, BIPOC communities. So we wanted to think about like, how can we bring those voices to the table around the solutions? And so if this incubator is some opportunity to like fuel new ideas or 
give a boost to something that somebody's already working on, we were really excited about it. We were trying to identify an, a way for us to show our purpose and have it come up. And again, like always thinking back to like, how can we do good for real? Like, how can we actually help make impact? We did this campaign, Get Into Nature, which we're still doing now, that is all about getting communities who don't have access to nature into nature, like addressing the inequity of access to nature. And this incubator program stemmed from that work. Like as we were sort of seeing, you know, these organizations that are, um, you know, BIPOC led that are, you know, really helping their community by closing that gap, we started to think about like, how could we maybe do that and accelerate that and specifically focus on like getting the the money and support into the hands of young people who are leading that movement. Toms of Maine is a great example of a certified B Corp working to create opportunities for marginalized communities. Though it does make me curious about how people access this opportunity. I mean, I think we didn't want to have any parameters around what the incubator would do. It was a very daunting process to launch this campaign because coming from the environmental movement and understanding like the clash between sort of like big green groups and grassroots groups is that sometimes these big companies want to come in and tell you how to do the things you're doing or like show you what you should be doing. And what I really thought was great about the way we set this program up is like, you tell us, like, what do you need? Like, tell us what you're working on. Tell us what you want to do with, if you had $20,000, how would you use that? So it really was open ended because we wanted to see like what came to us. So the process was filling out sort of an application just to describe like who you are, what you're doing, what the work is, and then doing a video. What is your work? What is your passion? And what do you want to do? And how would you leverage being in this program to do the work you do? So we were blown away by the submissions. Like we had so many wonderful people who applied. And it was really, really hard to narrow it down to five winners because the work that is happening, especially with young people right now, is really incredible. Well, I got to agree with Michelle on that one. I'm excited to learn more about all the work the Incubator Program is funding. This innovative program and others like it are key to finding lasting solutions for the environmental challenges that face us. We just think this program, it's about empowering people in a different way, not necessarily about like getting them a job, but really helping to foster the thing that they want to do. The idea of the program really came back to Tom's of Maine was founded by Tom and Kate Chappell, who built this company on a $5,000 loan and like a really big dream about creating products that were good for people and good for the planet. And so with that How could we sort of see that next generation with the equity lens of like making sure we're thinking about communities that don't always get that shot? And so I think we were really excited to launch this program and we're focused on like we just launched, we just found our winners, we're going to go through this process and understand what it means. And we're all really, really excited about it. And as we have been communicating like internally about like 
what this program is, the winners that we've chosen, everyone just just different than something we've done in the past. And I think we're all really excited to see sort of what can happen. And, and you know, hopefully we're learning a ton from this program. The sort of people in the incubator are learning a lot in this program. And like maybe something amazing happens where like their work become, you know, scalable and have huge impact. And like if we can play a small part in that trajectory of success, like we'll be thrilled. While Toms of Maine is looking to support that next big idea, we also wanted to highlight an innovative certified B Corp that is impacting both people and planet, Ether Diamonds. Ether Diamonds takes the CO2 in the air and using clean energy sources, turns the CO2 into actual diamonds. This has environmental benefits, but also some significant social benefits as well. We're pulling from episode 44, released in April of 2022, with co-founder Ryan Shearman to share with you Ether Diamond's story. To get us started, we want to set the scene with some of the social problems Ryan and his co-founder Dan set out to solve. The, the history of the diamond industry and as it pertains to human rights concerns, human rights abuses. I think that's pretty well known at this point. And it wasn't always. So, you know, I, I remember when I first started in jewelry, having an internal conflict myself, you know, as to the, the products I was developing and the materials and stones that were being used in them and, and where they came from. The industry has certainly done a good job at trying to clean some of that up. Some of it still persists even today. We're, we're not at a point where we can assure that 100% of all diamonds from the ground are, are being responsibly sourced. And they're not being done in a way that you know takes advantage of workers. Some of the folks engaged in the diamond production extraction side of this industry uh, in Africa may, may be working for literally dollars a day. And now look at what's happening with Russia. Uh, Al Rosa is one of the largest diamond producers in the world. Uh, they are in part state-owned. And any diamond that's being pulled out of the ground in Russia and sold into the open market, now there's some sanctions in place, you know, fortunately, but those are in part directly funding the Russian government and therefore funding the conflict in Ukraine. Those are conflict diamonds by definition. We, we can kind of sidestep all of that. Lab-grown diamonds in general were a step in the right direction for a few reasons, but one, namely, they avoid any of those challenges. However, they bring a challenge in and of themselves. As this entire industry you know, continues to adopt lab-grown diamonds, in, in greater and greater, you know, ways, I think the the challenge is then what happens to those folks who, you know, if that accelerates the time frame for when mines close, what's going to happen to the people who are, you know, on the ground who are doing that work? We need to, as an industry, rally and bring job training in and, and make sure that there's infrastructure in place to allow these people to continue to have a livelihood after diamond mining goes away. In our lifetime, over the course of the next 18 years, by 2040, 70% of all mines operating on planet Earth, diamond mines specifically, will be closed. Right? When you open a new diamond mine, you've done your geological surveys, you know how much material is underground. So you know, hey, this is a 20-year mine. This is a 30-year mine, a 50-year mine. So we know that 50% of the world's production of diamonds, comparable to the 2017 peak that we had hit, half of that's going to go away by 2040. Right? So if, if half of the world's production of diamonds from the ground goes away and there's mining closures, that's going to have a real impact on, on real people in this world. So you know, I think the lab-grown sector, you know, the this segment of the broader diamond trade, if we can come in and also hit that problem on the head and say, hey, what can we do 
to help, you know, work with organizations that have boots on the ground to establish job training programs uh, or do this or do that. All of that's really interesting for us. You know, we can pull carbon out of the air to make diamonds from anywhere in the world. What's to stop us from building a facility in one of these regions at some point in time and continuing to have, uh, you know, a talent base that understands the trade continue to work there because, you know, the amount of carbon in our air is not going to go away in 10 years, in 20 years. You know, we don't have that same, you know, uh, finite, you know, supply that we're dealing with. If we could get to a point where we were, were pulling such a massive amount of carbon out of the air that it, it, we were running into a supply issue, then lots of other problems would have been solved. So, you know, for us, uh, getting in the ground level, like I said before, and, and working with these organizations is going to be really important for us as we continue to scale. And hopefully that's something that this industry embraces moving forward. What an amazing insight to learn. Buying diamonds from Al Rosa, which is partly owned by the Russian government, was an income source for the war on Ukraine. Wow. While Ryan mentioned the term conflict diamonds, you may also have heard them referred to as blood diamonds. Those terms are used interchangeably. The United Nations defines conflict diamonds as, and I quote, Diamonds that originate from areas controlled by forces or factions opposed to legitimate and internationally recognized governments and are used to fund military actions in opposition to those governments or in contravention of the decisions of the Security Council. So just where did this amazing idea come from and how did either diamonds bring it all to life? We asked Ryan to share the origin story of either diamonds with us. So, you know, I, I, I cut my teeth in jewelry going back uh, a little over a decade now. Uh, that's where I met my co-founder, Dan. In 2018, I think I posted something on Facebook about an idea that I had. And you know, he calls me up and we get to chatting. And, um, you know, we had recognized that there were some challenges in, in the broader jewelry market, um, things that we might be able to tackle. And uh, again, I knew I wanted to do something that was impact oriented. I was reading a book called Drawdown. Actually, I keep this next to my desk. I don't know if you're familiar with Drawdown, but it's an anthology. It, it, it really breaks down all of these different projects that you know, humanity has undertaken to address the climate uh, crisis, whether these are natural solutions or engineered solutions. And at the back of the book, there's a section about you know, things that are coming soon. And it teased out a little bit of information around Climeworks and their direct air capture facility that they were at the time building in Hinville, Switzerland. Um, I was fascinated. You know, I'm an engineer, I'm a materials guy. And I said, you know, we have a chemical way of removing CO2 from the air. Now we just need to scale that. And, you know, that can play a big role in our fight against climate change, against global warming. It, this is a, a massive tool in our tool belt, you know, at a planetary scale. Uh, it turns out scaling that is easier said than done. It's expensive. Um, what do you do with the carbon once you've pulled it out of the air? Can you pump it underground into you know, basaltic rock formations and hope it just mineralizes? Sure. Uh, but that has its own cost. And all of a sudden, the unit economics come into play and it, it, it just doesn't really scale. And that's where we view diamonds as this unlock. And I was talking to Dan on a phone call. You know, it was telling him about direct air capture. We were talking about air quality in Bangkok, where he was living at the time. And uh, I think it almost just kind of slipped out. And I was like, wow, what if we could make diamonds from the carbon in the air? And we're both engineers and we were both like, hmm, well. <laughs> and that was it. That was the end of the phone call. I think it was like a week later, maybe five days later, you know, we get on another phone call and Dan says, hey, I can't stop thinking about making diamonds from air. And I said, neither can I. Here's an entire notebook page of, of you know, ideas I'm having around the chemistry and 
you know, ultimately what we ended up putting forth and, and the way we're making diamonds from air is remarkably similar to, you know, that initial kind of quick notebook sketch, which is, is, is really exciting to see that we were pretty close to the mark out of the gate. Um, but, you know, that was three years ago. So it took us some time to really take what was an idea on paper and turn it into a reality. There have been some pretty material changes along the way, but here we are. And we are, in fact, you know, making diamonds out of thin air. Every carbon atom that makes up those diamonds was previously and recently warming the planet. So, you know, this is, uh, as I like to say, we take carbon that warms the planet and we're transforming it into carbon that warms the heart. And, uh, yeah, we're pretty proud of what we've been able to achieve so far. And, and this is just the beginning. And what's even cooler than turning CO2 in the air into literal diamonds is that they do it with renewable energy sources. We use renewable energy everywhere we, we can. And, and renewable is really not the right word. Clean energy or zero emission energy is, is better. Um, nuclear energy, for everything that the nuclear debate you know can, can bring into a certain conversation, um, we won't get into that. But uh, nuclear is a zero emission power source. Some of our energy is nuclear. Some of it is solar. The vast majority of, of clean electrons that we're bringing to bear are coming from solar. There's a little bit of wind. There's a little bit of everything really sprinkled in. We're taking a, a kind of a portfolio approach to how we do that. The goal being be completely vertically integrated with our own power generation on site at some point in the future. So that's what we're working towards. Um, you know, we'd like to get there uh, in the not so distant future, next year and a half or so. To close out this episode, we are giving the last word to Scott Kelly from Revision Architecture. When you have a really good understanding of natural systems and a good understanding of built systems and how both of them support the social systems of our society, you have the knowledge to design really resilient systems. And that's key to us moving forward. Cheers to that. Let's keep moving forward as we learn and grow together. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode all about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goal number nine. Be sure to continue your learning in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast player. We'll have links to all our guests on the show today, as well as to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals number nine and some additional resources. Till next time, be responsibly different. Slow it down, it's okay It's on my own bright future in the lights today I can show you too like it's 1962 Got a bright future In the nick of time Bright future in the nick of time This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly, Ben Marine and Brittany Angelo. We purchased this music from the amazing B Corp Marmoset Music. You can check them out at marmosetmusic.com. To learn more about us, visit responsiblydifferent.com. And to learn more about our parent company, visit dirigocollective.com. <laughs>